The title of our series is Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And the, the me- title for this particular message uh, to Smyrna, I'm calling uh, True Faithfulness Brings True Riches. True Faithfulness Brings True Riches. And uh, so uh, we're going to read the text and we'll pray. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. <clears throat> to the angel... Of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, well, and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will, be, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak in our hearing the message we need to hear from this text, Lord. What would be appropriate and fitting for us from this text based on what it means, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. According to a book titled The Competitiveness of Cities, competition between cities is, even today, a chief controlling issue in deciding public policy. There's a striving to be the best or at least better than others, if you can't be the best. Accordingly, goals are set and policies created to help reach them. We loved it a couple of years ago when St. Pete Beach was awarded number one beach in the United States. Second was a beach in Hawaii. I mean, you know, it's like, wow. I was a little offended because that's my home state. But anyway... <clears throat> And either it's because of the economic benefits that we perceive we will gain from such a ranking, or it's just kind of a pride of place, right? Like, woo, I live, that's, that's our beach, you know? I mean, you and I know it really isn't the number one beach, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and we'd, we'd gladly get in the car and go down to say, you know, Siesta Key. But, you know, hey, ixnay the talk, right? <clears throat> Until recently, cities would spend billions of dollars in a competition to be named the host of the Olympics. Now, desirable cities aren't really interested because the cost of winning is higher than the economic benefit that the games generate. There's no return on investment, so forget about it. It's all about ROI, right? This striving to be best is about money. The committee, now the Olympic Committee, is just starting to award the games to cities without competition. Just, you know, we'll pick a city based on, you know, are you willing? Okay, that'll work great. To be a number one city today, uh, that city would have to have certain things. Sports teams, uh, professional, you know, level. uh, Museums, uh, a cool history would be helpful. Jobs and economic growth opportunities. Affordable housing, transportation, education, and last but certainly not least, great food, right? Important in a city. You wouldn't go to a city that didn't have good food, but you got to have that. The cities in Asia Minor, at the time when John was writing, 
competed intensely to be considered first in the eyes of Rome because of the great economic benefits that came to them. Lower taxes and a whole variety of freedoms that they would experience because of their being first in the eyes of Rome. It was a big deal. One author describes their competitive feats as, quote, civic competition on a mythic scale. Civic competition on a mythic scale. And indeed, it was. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon fiercely competed for such a title, as did the other church cities mentioned where these churches were. But those in particular were in the, in the running to be first in Asia for Rome. And, and so they did Smyrna. Uh, and, and by the way, the, the, they did this by displaying the greatest loyalty to Caesar through nothing other than imperial worship. That was essential. Smyrna, for example, a prosperous port city rivaling Ephesus, maintained a special loyalty to Rome. They built a temple to Roma uh, in 195 B.C. and dedicated a temple to Tiberius and the Roman Senate in 26 A.D. So a mere, you know, 75 years, not even 75 years, 70 years prior to the writing of, of this book we call Revelation. The historian Livy wrote that Rome held Smyrna in honor because of that city's, quote, extraordinary loyalty. Extraordinary loyalty. John, the apostle, was interested in another competition. One between Babylon, which was embodied in Rome at the time, and the New Jerusalem. That's the only competition he's interested in in this book. Between the city of the beast and the city of the lamb. As we will see, this theme is obvious in the message to Smyrna, yet it is present in each of the prophetic messages to the seven churches. As we explore the messages, it's important that we continually seek to answer this question. In what is Babylon embodied today? See, if we learn about all their struggles with Babylon of their times, but we don't stop to ask ourselves, in what is Babylon embodied today, then it really is meaningless to us. And trust me, it is embodied in something today. In fact, the storyline of the Scripture is that from as far back as Cain's early descendants... Babylon has been present in the world and has always been an enemy of the people of God. So in what has Babylon been, is Babylon present today? This civic yearning to win the emperor's favor had no small consequence for the Christians. A community commanded not to eat food sacrificed to idols, including the emperor, It had no small consequence for the bride of the Lamb, for whom entering the system's success involved spiritual fornication against her husband, as we learn later in this book. The believers in Smyrna had been faithful to their husband, Christ, which is more than we can say for most of the cities. We'll explore each prophetic message under the same five headings that we used last week. Christ's credentials, Christ's commendation, Christ's criticism, Christ's corrective, and Christ's consequences. And we'll begin here under the heading, Christ's credentials. Read with me again verse 8. 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. These two self-designations that Christ uses here, the first and the last, who died and came to life again, they, they come straight from chapter 1, verse 17, 17b, or the second half of 17 and then 18, where Christ declares, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Thus says him who is the first and the last. I like to use that language, thus saith, or thus says. Um, you may recall this introductory wording we looked at last week is old Greek. would have sounded old to them, much like when we say, thus saith the Lord. And so it was a way to identify what is to follow. What is to follow is a prophetic message. <clears throat> thus says him who is the first and the last. Fawning for Caesar's favor is pointless since Christ is first. Caesar is not first. Christ is. That's the one whose favor we need to attend to. And oh, he's not only first, he's also last. Which, truth be told, means he's everything in between too. You know, when, when, when we go to buy a car and they say, well, it comes with a bumper-to-bumper warranty. Well, it doesn't just cover the bumpers. That means it covers everything in between. And when we read in Genesis 1 as evening and morning, the first day, that doesn't mean that afternoon wasn't part of the day. It's everything in between. Well, likewise, the first and the last. He is the first. He's the last. He's everything. Amen. This designation of Christ as the first and the last appears three times in the book of Revelation. As mentioned a moment ago in the vision of 117, that here in our text, and then at the end of the book in 2213, in Christ's concluding comments to the vision. This title has clear Old Testament allusion, which the Christians at Smyrna would have recognized. Remember, when, when they came for the wor- you know, to worship, they, they had messages that were by and large from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was their Bible, along with some circular letters from Paul and others that would have been circulated. And by the time this book is written, some of the Gospels would have been being circulated among them. So yes, they had these other documents, but predominantly their preaching came from the Old Testament, so they are familiar, and especially their preaching came, if the New Testament is, any, is indicative in any way of which texts were their favorites, the book of Isaiah. And so... In Isaiah, Yahweh refers to himself three times with this language. The first, Isaiah 41.4, after Isaiah has foretold the exile and then the return, the Lord says that he is with the first of them and the last of them. The first generation of Israel all the way back to the Exodus and will be with the last. I mean, they're beginning to think they are the last in Isaiah. We're, we're, we're getting sent away, but no, I'll be with the last. Which is to say, I'm, your future is in my hands. And as we will see, the Smyrnian Christians are suffering and may fear whether God is with them. Christ, the one walking among them, will be with them. And now future, uh, the, the, the now future generation of the people, 
Fast forward from Isaiah, the Smyrdians are saying, we are one of those future people. And He, the first and the last, is with us. He is in our presence and caring for us. Then in Isaiah 44, 6, we read, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. This reminder that there is no other God, Caesar included, would comfort the believers in Smyrna who were suffering because they refused to worship the idols of Roman power. Finally, in Isaiah 48, 10 through 14, I'm going to read a little bit longer section here because of the numerous connections to our text in Revelation. So I'm going to begin in verse 10. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. Note this connection. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That comes up in our text. We'll point it out in a moment. The Smyrnian church will be tested in a furnace of affliction. Verse 11, for my own sake... For my own sake, note note the emphasis there. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. It's bold leathers. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. The Smyrnian believers were suffering because they refused to give Christ's glory to Caesar, to another. Verse 12, listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundation of the earth. That's the first. And my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they will all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The the Lord, Yahweh's chosen ally, will carry out His purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. The promise that the Lord will carry out His purpose against Babylon would be particularly relevant for these suffering loyal believers for whom Babylon was embodied in Rome. And and at the time, the first century, it was common amongst Jews, not just Christians, to refer to Rome as Babylon. That would have been their basic understanding of who uh, Rome was. Because they also understood Egypt was Babylon. They also understood that, that even the Canaanites represented aspects of Babylon. So much connected to this idea of Babylon that that comes up here in the book of Revelation. And so, the Smyrnians were suffering, as we will see in a moment, because they were suffering at the hands of Babylon. So, to, to think that he is the first and the last tells us that he will take care of Babylon on their behalf. Now, being the first and the last is relevant for the whole church, but especially meaningful to this loyal, uncompromising community in Smyrna. By claiming this title, Christ communicates at least two things. First, that Christ is God. If Yahweh is the first and the last and there is no other, then logically, if Christ is the first and the last, He must be Yahweh. It's kind of impossible for that not to work out that way. For a church being persecuted, as we will see by the Jews, possibly even because of this belief, This is a strong encouragement. That that Christ is sovereign Lord, it it also communicates that that He is sovereign Lord, that that Christ, not Caesar, is Lord, that Christ, not the city officials, is Lord. And then there's the second title, who died and came to life again. Not only is Christ sovereign over their suffering and even death, should it come, 
He can also say, I've been there and done that. I've been there and done that. Whatever you face, I've been there and done that. He himself succumbed to the unjust powers of Rome, the injustice of a corrupt Jewish religion, the mock trial, suffering and death, even death as an enemy of Caesar on a cross. And he is alive again. In the opening vision, it is explicitly stated that this means he has the keys of death and the realm of the dead. He has authority over who goes in and who doesn't go in. That's all implicit. Who died and came to life again in that statement. That brings us to the second part of this prophetic message to the Smyrnians. Christ's commendation, verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, most scholars of New Testament Greek suggest that this is most likely should be understood. I know your afflictions, namely your poverty, parenthetical phrase, and, and the slander, so, so the afflictions are to be understood, their suffering, their tribulation, their oppression, as being experienced in poverty and slander. Now what brought about their poverty and slander? That's the question that raises to my mind. I mean, why were they poor? And why were they being slandered? Their poverty and slander were related to the issue of emperor worship. It was a kind of Roman patriotism in which these believers were unwilling to participate at a great cost to themselves. Poverty. (laughs) Yet you are rich. Christ does not view things as we do. See, we look at poverty and we say, what's the problem? He looks and says, yet you are rich to these believers. This was not some sort of positive affirmation like, you know, well, I'm not accepting that you're poor, you're rich, you really are, it's coming, don't worry, your ship's going to come in. That's not what's taking place here. Some worldly way. Sadly, in the church today as well. It's a declaration of spiritual reality. You are rich. James, the Lord's brother, tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Their poverty in Smyrna was the direct consequence of their faith, their unwillingness to participate in activities which involved sacrifices to the emperor. In some states in our nation, to get ahead as a worker, one must belong to a union. You know, so if we go back to Missouri, Missouri recently became a right-to-work state. That was always a big debate whether it would ever become a right-to-work state, and it, it did. But you talk to some people, you're like, yeah, it's, just the wrong, it's the worst thing in the world. That should never happen. And you talk to others, and they're thrilled. It's all a matter of perspective, right? In, in a case where you have to, to be in a union, well, you've got to pay the dues, and you've got to do it. Well, they, they had similar things in their day. They had a trade guilds. Um, but membership in those associations, these trade guilds, so if you are a farmer and you want to sell your produce, well, you've got to be in the agricultural trade guild. And if you're not, then everybody's going to say, don't buy from them, buy over here. 
You don't want to buy that. That's not blessed by the gods. This is. So they, they go broke. Or you're making you know, baskets. You're the Basket Weavers Trade Guild. I don't know if they actually had a Basket Weavers Trade Guild, but you get the point. That you have to be in that, and to be in that, that involves uh, participation in pagan ceremonies to include sacrifices to honor the emperor, which would be forbidden to Christ's followers. Jesus' followers face a hard choice. Should they compromise their faith in order to retain membership in the guild and continue working, or refuse to participate and risk unemployment and poverty? That was the choice they had to face. Later in the, uh, into this vision of Revelation, we discover that this would be like asking whether a wife should sleep with another man because she likes the gifts that he gives her, despite her love for her husband. Because Babylon is called the what? The whore. With all her delicacies and trinkets that she offers. And, you know, hey, listen. Sorry about the offensiveness of the reference to a whore and, 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 and there, but the reality is that's where they thought and that's how their world was constructed. So we're working with their world, not our own, uh, in this. So uh, don't be offended by it. Maybe the Smyrnian church should think like some in Corinth apparently thought. You know, it doesn't matter. Idols aren't real anyway. Many people read 1 Corinthians 8 and think Paul is agreeing with that sentiment, and he's not. But when he gets to chapter 10, he condemns it outright. Let you go to our, listen to our series in, in 1 Corinthians if you want more on that. The Smyrnians refused to compromise their faith for economic gain. In a world in which we are taught from a young age to separate our faith from the practical concerns of life, it is hard to conceive of such choices. For Americans, the increase of profit can justify just about anything to include laying off the very people that help the company get where it is. It's just business. As if that somehow justifies it. When challenged by the products we, about the products we buy, produced with child slave labor, for instance, or because it's destroying the very planet God made us stewards over, in my experience, a common Christian response is, yes, but you've got to be realistic in dire poverty because of their faithfulness to Christ. The Smyrdian Christians... are one of two churches that Christ has nothing bad to say about. Jeff Wyman notes that since, since the Smyrnian church receives the only message in which poverty is specifically mentioned, it likely means that it was unusual, noteworthy, and severe poverty. Unusual, noteworthy, and severe. There are only two churches which have no criticism or condemnation from Christ. And I, this is worth paying attention to. We, remember last week we had the, the whole diagram of the seven churches and, and, and to which ones were in, in good order? Well, two. Two were in good order out of seven. And two had no criticism from Christ or no condemnation for their behavior. And there was one church that had no commendation. They had no praise from Christ. One, Laodicea. Christ says to the two which have no condemnation, Smyrna and Philadelphia, nothing to criticize. 
He, he says to Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He, he says to Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength. Isn't that interesting? Though poverty is not specifically mentioned, poverty is economic weakness, economics are definitely a key measure of strength in Babylon or Rome or even America today. Whatever the cause, the church in Philadelphia had no power in this world system. Whether it was poverty or something else, we don't know for certain. We can talk about that when we get there. To Laodicea, the one that has no commendation, they have no praise, he says this, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Not, not good words. And they are the ones that get specifically noted for their wealth. It's also worth noting, and we'll talk about it when we get there, that this, this rhetorical device that's used in the message to Laodicea by putting imaginary words in their mouth, you say, I am rich, yet you are da-da-da-da-da. The only other place in Revelation that that device is used is in speaking of Babylon. You say, I don't need anything. Goes on and on. So we'll look at that when we get there more specifically. But there's an association from Laodicea having been in league with Babylon that's worth paying attention to. But not Smyrna by any means. John might have wondered how Christians could accumulate wealth and remain faithful to Christ at the same time. You cannot worship God and Mammon. You cannot worship God and the money God. But that is a question that the church in the West rarely, if ever, ask. How can Christians accumulate wealth and remain faithful to Christ? That we don't. We assume that one could be a better Christian with wealth. Maybe a better witness to the world. How might this help us understand the health of the church today? In the West, with relative prosperity, the church is in decline. In the majority world, the global South and East, with relative poverty, the church is growing rapidly. How would these messages impact how these churches heard the rest of the vision through the rest of this book we call Revelation. Maybe the members of the church in Laodicea with their earthly wealth would read about the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18 sympathetically regarding the merchants and traders who are mourning that their prosperity has shriveled. Which, by the way, as a child, all my years growing up, that's how I naturally read it. I'd get to that part about Babylon, I'm like, oh man, those poor guys? This is awful. All their prosperity's gone. It's not how we're supposed to see it, by the way. I'm just telling you how I did see it, just naturally, because guess what? I live in a prosperous world. Maybe those believers in Laodicea heard the call come out of her in the description of Babylon. 
come out of her, my people, as being particularly applicable to themselves. The faithful Jesus followers who gathered in Smyrna and Philadelphia would hear it differently. Babylon is fallen would bring them great joy and a sense of justice. It would strengthen them in their resistance to the economic system of Rome. Their poverty, and the second thing he specifically mentions that is one of their tribulations or afflictions, is the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Most likely what is happening is that the growing Christian community has caused jealousy among the Jews such that they are both slandering them in the generic sense of the word, but also formally, formally, not formerly, formally slandering them by bringing charges against them to the not-so-civil civil authorities, which would lead to, the impri- to imprisonment and possibly martyrdom, which is mentioned next. You see, you have both of those going on in it's, it's, uh, Acts 18, when Paul goes to Corinth. He goes there and he starts preaching and many people start to believe and the Jews become jealous and start spreading bad rumors about Paul and that causes them trouble. But then they go to the city officials and create an official charge, a slander against them in a very formal way that caused them trouble. And you see this elsewhere in Acts. It's kind of a pattern of those. In fact, just a little side note, in Romans where it talks about you know, the, 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 the many Gentiles coming in and causing Jews to be jealous, I always read that as like, Oh, yes, we're going to get so blessed by God that they're going to become jealous and want to be Christians. And that word jealous is never used in a positive sense in Scripture. Their becoming jealous means that they're going to persecute us and cause us much pain. And that's what you see taking place in the book of Acts. That's what was their reality at that time. They were slandering them. John knows that what Jesus means by those who say they are Jews but are not. Remember, John penned John 8, where Jesus tells the Jews not to think that because they descended from Abraham, they had God as their father. He says, in fact, that they were descended from their father, the devil, because their deeds, their behavior was like his. And that God could raise up descendants of Abraham from stones, or as it turns out, Gentiles. Just to be clear, this isn't about whether Jews or Gentiles are better. This isn't a racial thing. This isn't anti-Semitism. This is dealing with the religious reality of that time. And it's vital that we understand it, to understand our New Testaments, okay? Calling them a synagogue of Satan is is fitting. You see... They're slandering them, they're accusing them, and bringing them before the city officials, which is why they land in prison, and some are going to be put to death. We'll talk about that. But it Satan means accuser. So a synagogue of Satan is simply saying, that synagogue is accusing you. But it's also associating it with Satan, the dragon, the devil, Next time you begin to slander and accuse your brothers or sisters in Christ, remember whom you are associating yourself with. 
Or as James puts it, who the source of your wisdom is, earthly, sensual, and of the devil. Now we turn to the third part of this message, which is Christ's criticism. And you will note that it is completely missing. There is no criticism from Christ for the Smyrnian Christians. So, swing and a miss. Okay, fourth, Christ's corrective. Okay, if there's not a criticism, one would ex- not expect to find a corrective, and we don't. In its place, though, we have something else, and that's an encouragement to continue in their faithfulness. Look with me at verse, uh, uh, verse 10, the first part of verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Some from the church will be outed by their neighbors and friends to the authorities and will land in prison while they await trial. Now, after trial, they will not be put in prison if they're found guilty. The Romans didn't do that. It was too expensive. They would either be found innocent or they would be put to death unless they were wealthy or had some kind of status, which, in which case they would be exiled. About 60 years after the time of this writing, the book of Revelation, in 155, Uh, A.D., Uh, we have the earliest story of martyrdom outside of the Bible. Polycarp was originally a disciple of the Apostle John. He eventually became the bishop of the church, guess where? Smyrna, which is where he's at uh, when this happens. Uh, He was brought before the city officials and charged with being an atheist, which was not an uncommon charge at the time for Christians. The charge actually had some truth to it. Christians did not believe in the plurality of gods that the Romans did and goddesses, uh, uh, the Greeks and Romans worship. To to believe in only one god for them uh, was the equivalent to believing in no god, since, for crying out loud, you you don't believe in any of these. One? I mean, you're atheist. You don't believe in God. Kind of how that logic went. What offended their pagan neighbors was the exclusivity of the Christian faith and the one true God and their rejection of all other gods. Polycarp, at 86 years old, the leader of these offensive Christians in Smyrna, was about to be burned to death, burned at the stake. Seeing this elderly and frail Christian leader, the city official felt some sympathy for him and tried to find a way for Polycarp to avoid this painful execution. You could sum up his words under the heading of, let's be reasonable. He says, why don't you just say, Caesar is Lord, put a bit of incense on this altar devoted to the image of the emperor, and then we can let you go. In response, Polycarp uttered the words that would seal his fate, quote, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he was burned at the stake. He wasn't reasonable. The most natural thing when one faces suffering, affliction, and death is to be overcome by fear. So Christ gives a necessary, meaningful encouragement. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. That encouragement is followed by another, which would remind them that Christ is truly the one in charge of history, not Rome. The devil will put some of you into prison. 
Now that's warning them of a future event that's going to happen here, something about to happen to them, but this apparently has not yet happened to them. They're being slandered, all sorts of things. They're fearing for this. But the devil will put some of you into prison. This, the, the devil comes up uh, again in chapter 12 where we're told that the dragon who tried to kill Christ himself but fails to kill Christ then makes war on the saints. Well, the Smyrnians are no strangers to this war on the saints. They're experiencing it. Uh, there, we are told that this uh, dragon is called the devil and Satan. Well, the synagogue of Satan, so... They know who this dragon is and how it's manifesting itself. You might say, where's the encouragement? The devil will put some of you into prison. Well, I think it's twofold. First, the purpose of the imprisonment, to test you. To test you. The devil's purpose is to destroy them, but God's purpose is to test them as in a furnace. Remember the reference from Isaiah 48. As in a furnace that they might come out proven and pure. Secondly, it's encouraging because of the length of the imprisonment. And you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Now, there's two reasons why that could be encouraging to them. The first, I'd put as the lesser reason. But on first glance, though ten is a big number, it's a number of completeness, uh, it might imply a long time, yet it is days, not years, which means it's a relatively, though thorough, period of time. A relatively, though thorough, testing. The second reason, which I think is even bigger, is that this 10-day testing is taken right out of Daniel 1. And when we go there and see what it is, we can see why it's encouraging to them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being chided for not eating at the king's, the king's food, the royal food, uh, most likely because it was sacrificed to idols. Don't miss the connection to Smyrna there. They would eat only vegetables, which, of course, would be the diet of somebody who has poverty. No meat, just eat vegetables. That's all you've got. Daniel says, quote, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. It's important, first of all, to to, to notice that the point in Daniel is not that a diet of vegetables will make you healthier than a diet of meat. That is not the point. The point is that because Daniel and his friends were willing to honor God and sacrifice their own well-being, that in the end they would actually be healthier because of God's sustenance and not human sustenance. Amen. This isn't a diet book. It's the Bible. So anyway. (laughs) Somebody stop me. Okay. The Smyrnian church hears in this that they will be healthier in their poverty in the long run than those who partake in the prosperity available if they would only eat food sacrificed to idols. That they will be healthier if they're put in prison and even die than if they would just eat the food sacrificed to idols and go on with life. Since there was no criticism and the corrective is replaced by an encouragement, then instead of both a negative consequence or punishment, and a positive consequence or reward, we find in this final part of the message only a reward. Look with me at the end of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. 
Whoever has ears to hear, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. A victor's crown. We hear crown, and we think of what a king or a queen wears, but that is not the intended image. There's another word they had for that, which we would translate diadem. This was the victor's wreath, generally made of vegetation, could be palm branches or other kinds of branches. It was used for sports champions, so the equivalent maybe of a Stanley Cup or a Lombardi trophy, or maybe even a closer parallel would be a Super Bowl ring or a World Series ring, because that was individually worn by the champion, if you will. But it was perishable. It was a familiar symbol to the Smyrnians since this wreath was a symbol of the city itself. The, the, the emblem for Smyrna was the victor's wreath. I'm getting into all the reasons why behind that, but it's worth noting they would be very familiar with it. These wreaths were also used for leaders of military campaigns who were victorious. Of course, a king's crown would have been seen as a sign of rebellion, so that would not have been appropriate. But these victor's wreaths would have been, and that's what they would be crowned with if they were triumphant. The victor's wreath of life, or the victor's wreath which is eternal life, is meaningful. These believers are faithful, even to the point of death. If they are, they will be victorious and receive life, eternal life. They are trading a perishable wreath of Smyrna for an imperishable crown of eternal life. They will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's another promise. This reward. Revelation 20 verse 14 tells us the lake of fire is the second death. The victorious, those who remain faithful to Christ, will not be touched by that, but will inherit the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21, the first seven verses. They fled Babylon as instructed, and therefore they received the heavenly city. Among those whom verse 8 of chapter 21 tells us, that will be thrown into the lake of fire, are the faithless. They're not faithful like the Smyrnian Christians are. They were faithless. And the idolaters, they, they go ahead and compromise with the culture for economic gain. In closing, I want to raise just a caution. One could grasp the structure the background, all the Old Testament connections, and even all the exegetically correct meaning of the words and phrases in this message, and yet still miss the point of the text. We must press through to how these concerns impact our worship and our witness in the world. You see, don't miss the fact that the prophetic message to a suffering church in poverty likely had a different purpose to them than it has to us living in the West, living in relative prosperity, yet they are related. It was written to them, this message. It was not written to us, it was written to them, but it was written for us. You know, we often hear the Bible's God's love letter to you. Well, I get the point of that. I agree with the sentiment. It's not true. <clears throat> the Bible was not written to you. Not directly. Only indirectly. It was written to people who lived at least, if not longer than, 2,000 years ago. 
And if we want to understand what it says to us and for us, we have to start there. But we can't stop there. We have to move then forward to here. And the danger exists with this particular message to stop there. Oh, wow, those Smyrdians were great. Well, certainly they should be emulated. You see, we cannot, for example, read the promised rewards at the end of this message and assume they are ours without being as faithful as they were. It's not that everybody in the church has to become martyrs. Certainly not everybody in Smyrna had to become martyrs. That's not what that message even says. But they did need to be faithful to their husband Christ and not compromise for economic advantage with Babylon. What does that mean for American Christians today? I I just tried to press this into the reality we live in. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying, okay? So don't hold me to account for it. But how many of us would be willing to suffer the consequences of, say, for instance, not allowing our kids to play sports on Sunday mornings because worship was our priority? How many of us would, be, um, would encourage a, pot- a potential you know, up-and-coming professional football or baseball player to pursue something else because it would hinder their ability to faithfully worship the king with a family of believers. And again, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just positing the question. Because if we can't do those kinds of things, surely we couldn't do what the Smyrnians did. That is my point. Whether we should do those, I'll leave that between you and God, but just saying, what they, what they had to do is much more challenging. Don't we tend to think that if they make all that money as a professional ball player that they're going to have the, and they get all that fame that they could serve Christ better? I mean, think of what your testimony for Christ could be if. I don't think the Smyrnians were thinking that way. Could John or could those believers in Smyrna have even conceived of such thoughts? And maybe these aren't the right questions, but I'm just trying to faithfully press on what this text is pressing on. We often say that we are not persecuted in America today. But there's two possible reasons for that. One is because America doesn't persecute righteousness, and that's a possibility. The other is because we've so compromised with the world around us that there's nothing to be persecuted over. And that is a real danger in a church whose predominant tendency is to want to be liked by the world so that they will come and support our cause. Remember, each of the seven churches is called to be a candlestick, a light put in a place to shine so all can see. To become a shining candlestick here in our community, we must ask questions that press on this issue of faithfulness to Christ and not messing around with Babylon. The believers at Smyrna discovered that true faithfulness brings true riches even if it brings earthly poverty and death. And I I trust in all this, you're beginning to see that the whole vision of Revelation, not just chapters 2 and 3, was relevant to the churches in Asia and therefore is relevant to us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I...
won't pretend to know all the questions we should ask that press on these issues in our hearts, but I know your spirit does know. And maybe they're different questions for each one of us. I pray that you would raise those questions in our own hearts and minds as we consider these things. Lord, we, we want to be faithful like the Smyrnian Christians, but truth be told, I don't know that any of us really want what it took to get there. We want the faithfulness of the Philadelphian church, but do we really want what it took to get there? Yet, Lord, these texts call us to want that. To come out of Babylon in its present form. Lord, help us to recognize the particular places where we've compromised our worship of you with some form of idolatry. Maybe with an attitude like the Corinthians that, ah, it doesn't really matter anyway. Forgive us, Lord. Amen.